Well, we're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 11. We finished at verse 13 uh, last time, and we're going to pick up in verse 14. The plan is to make it all the way to the, to the end, and the title is Hearing and Heeding the Word of God. This next section is going to show us the importance of obeying the Lord. We're going to observe leaders that could not see the power of God in their midst and therefore dismissed the teaching and the preaching of Jesus Christ, most notably that He is the Son of God. He's going to give examples of those who did it right. He's going to give examples of those who did it wrong. <laughs> and, and, and most notably, it's the people that are right in His midst. This is one of Jesus' fiery sermons. He didn't get the be politically correct memo before he started Luke chapter 11. And we'll talk about that. But in verses 14 through 16, we begin by reading this. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was, when the demon had gone out, that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons, others testing him, Sought from him a sign from heaven. So Jesus is here accused in verses 14 um, and through 16 of using satanic power. Now he has just talked about in the previous verses that we could come and we could pray to the Father and that he would give us the Holy Spirit. That we, we, if, if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? And then he, by the power of the Spirit, casts out these demons. And those, some, of course, they marvel, they wonder. But a group of them say he does it with satanic power. That's kind of what's meant by he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demon, of the demons. Uh, something about uh, casting out a demon um, who had caused the person they were possessing to be mute is that uh, first century Jews believed this was the hardest of all the demons to cast out. We're not going biblical here. We're just saying this is what they thought. The reason they thought that is because they believed they had to be able to get into a conversation with that demon in order to cast it out. They had to know its name. They had to, whatever information they thought was vital, they, they had to have this so that they could engage in an exorcism with the demon. So now here comes Jesus, and he cast out a demon without having any conversation with it. And so while it's impressive enough that Jesus is able to speak to demons and tell them to be quiet. He never wanted to engage with the demons, did he? He told them to be quiet, and then he would send them out. But for them, as they sat there and watched this, this just kind of rose to the next level in their mind. It doesn't mean that it was the next level, but in their minds, that's how it would have been viewed. But there was a group of them that were unimpressed. They did not marvel. As a matter of fact, they began to malign him, didn't they? This guy does it with satanic power. These leaders were unwilling to hear the voice of the Lord and what they had witnessed with their eyes. They watched something amazing take place. That Jesus cast out a demon from a person that was unable to speak. And so that, that demon went out. And they looked at that 
some marveled and others looked at it and said, don't see anything impressive here. As a matter of fact, we see something that's very, very concerning to us. So they accused Jesus of using Satan's power to perform this miraculous deliverance. Um, and, and we find this interesting term, Beelzebub. So Baal, Old Testament, Canaanite God that they worship. Um, and Baal you can think of as a, a, a name that became synonymous with the Lord. Not in scripture, but just among that, uh, the pagans that worship this God. So you had Baal. And then you had Zebub. But um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting here, as you look at this, and I don't want to get too far off into the weeds, but I've, I've spent a lot of time looking into this, so you're going to hear a little bit. Beelzebub, um, actually in the Greek, um, would here be Beelzebul. So rather than Z-E-B-U-B, it would be Z-E-B-U-L. But it's transliterated, as we look at this, to uh, Beelzebub. And so what's going on here? And the etymology of this word is not, you, you can't nail it down with any certainty. So you find a lot of people coming up saying, where, where does this word derive from? Where did it come from? We, we know what it means. Um, we, we can see by the context what they had associated was this was a title that was given to somebody that was over the demons, which in this case, of course, would be Satan. All right, so the, the ruler of the demons is Satan himself. So we, we know that, but what's the history of this, this word? 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 16 um, makes a reference to this Beelzebub. It was a Canaanite god um, that they worshipped. One of the kings of Israel was wanting to inquire of this god to find out if he would live. But um, it's thought that, one, one view is that um, while well, we're reading Beelzebub uh, here in our English, and then in 2 Kings 1.16, again, it's Beelzebub, that, that actually originally was, the word was Beelzebul. And here, uh, bull. And the reason is, Beelzebul means Lord of high places, Lord of the temple, Lord of maybe even in the heaven. That's a pretty glorious name, isn't it? I mean, that's a pretty significant name. So, so what is thought took place is that when the, this was written out in Greek, so there's a Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, um, that when it was being written out, that the, the writer said, I'm not calling this guy Beelzebul, Lord of Heaven. I'm going to call him Beelzebub. And that is Lord of the Flies. Or maybe even some have suggested worse, Lord of the Dung Heap, where flies would hang out. So it's meant to be a way of kind of degrading in a very purposeful way the meaning of this name. And so you have these, again, we don't know for certain, but these are some of the ideas that are around this. But it is clear what their meaning is like, you're doing this with the power of Satan himself. And so they said, show us a sign so that we can really know who you are and what's going on. Now, he just cast out a demon, and they want to see a sign. One of the things that uh, John the Baptist inquired of, he says, hey, um, are you the one, or do we look for another? One of the things he talked about was, you know, demons are being cast out. People are getting their hearing back. Miracles are taking place. Yeah, I'm the one. It was a sign. 
But they're asking after seeing this sign, hey, show us a sign so that we can really know, which there would have been no end to that road because these people, we're going to find out, um, were an evil generation as the Lord is going to call them. So verses 18 through 22, or verses 17 through 22 actually, Jesus responds and he refutes the blasphemous charge that they speak against him. He says, But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. You know, civil war is never good for a nation, is it? If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. So their thoughts are revealed once again. They're thinking these blasphemous starts, and he engages, he goes, all right, so you think that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan. A house divided against itself, does it stand? How, how did that work out for our country? How did that work out for Israel, the northern tribes and the southern tribes? It didn't work out. We had you know, bloodshed, we had warfare. This is, of course, would have been a, a, a point of reference to what Jesus was saying for them if they wanted to, to go there in their minds and think about that. But it's not good. So he's saying, this is illogical to think that Satan would give me power to cast out a demon who has established Satan's foothold in a person's life. This becomes counterproductive for the kingdom of darkness if I am using the power of Satan to cast out Satan. That is an unwise thing, and it's going to fall. He says, but by the way, the people that run in your crowd, your sons, how do they cast out demons? Because there were those uh, that would travel around and they would cast out demons. Um, we have one reference in the book of Acts to a group of these. It didn't go so well for them. But in Acts, um, the seven sons of Sceva were trying to cast out demons, remember? And they're like, yeah, we know Jesus, we know Paul, we don't know you and the demons through that the possessed person began to attack them. So they were traveling about and they were casting out demons. So they, you know, they saw success. They saw times when they would see a person delivered. So he's saying, so if I am doing this by the power of Satan, then I guess you're saying that the people you run with are also doing it by the power of Satan, which he knew they would never agree to. They had just seen an amazing miracle, so they went to a more outrageous statement to try and deflect the people that were marveling and looking. They were turning people away from the Lord with this kind of a statement. They, they wouldn't give credit to Satan uh, for uh, the deliverance that they had uh, seen by their countrymen and how they had worked and, and ministered. So he says, why is it so with me? So if it's not that, if your sons are not doing it by the power of Satan, then guess what? The kingdom of God is here. 
You need to deal with what's happening. You need to acknowledge what's taking place. It's upon you. It's not even, I mean, it's like it is all around you right now. If you're willing to see it, you can see it. The kingdom of God is here. But they didn't want to see it, and so therefore they didn't hear it. They didn't accept it. Isn't it amazing that somebody could actually witness God in the flesh and watch him perform a miracle like this and draw the conclusion that you must be filled with Satan and I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to, um, uh, we want to turn people away from you. How could they be so hard-hearted? How could they be so cold? And yet that is exactly what is taking place. But it's not so different than the things that we see even in our day. It's amazing that people today can still see a person being delivered and transformed and they will accuse that as being an evil thing. I'll give you one example. Find a person who has been living in sexual immorality and watch them turn away from sexual immorality, especially sins of homosexuality, and watch how the world will respond to that work of God in their life. It is a work of the Lord. Anytime any person turns from any sin, but in our world today, boy, if that happens, they want to make that illegal, actually. That's, that's their heart's desire, and to make this a, 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 an offense that could be charged under the laws of the United States. They don't like to see Jesus at work. There has always been this group, and there will always be this group, that stands in resistance to the work of God. And even when it is so obvious, right in front of us, they will reject it. How about the work of Jesus Christ on the cross? And that all who would put their faith and trust in Him could have the hope of eternal life. And that all must turn from their sin and to Jesus Christ. How, how does the world respond to this? Do they celebrate that work of Christ and his teaching that says this is what must happen? Or do they call that an evil thing? Try, try and lead somebody to faith of another religion. How is the world going to look and respond on that? They're going to think of you as an evildoer. They're called Jesus an evildoer. And Jesus says, don't be surprised when you go out and you do things in my name that they don't like you either. If they don't like me, they're not going to like you. And so this still is something that goes on to this very day. Jesus talks about the deliverance that happens when one stronger than another comes and takes the armor, takes away um, all the, the weaponry, and he defeats them. And, and Jesus is saying, I am that one. <laughs> I'm stronger than these demons, and I am come to bind him. I've come to destroy him. And we read in Colossians that when Jesus rose from the dead, he triumphed over Satan, making him a public spectacle. The idea of public spectacle, spectacle is think of a Roman general marching into a city, destroying that city, taking the leader out, throwing them on the ground, and him putting his foot upon his neck. And just saying, this is your power, and I have your power on the ground, and my foot is on his neck. It's now I'm in charge. And that, this is what Jesus did. He made Satan a public spectacle when he rose from the dead, defeating him. 
Now, we see today that the penalty of sin was broken at the cross and we are no longer under that penalty. We see today that as we walk and abide in Jesus Christ, the power of the cross will rest upon us and we will not be controlled by its uh, sin sinful passions any longer. And one day we will be delivered from the presence of sin. And we will not have to contend or fight with it anymore, all because Jesus came and he was a stronger one than Satan. And if you're here tonight and you're thinking there are things in my life that are too powerful and nobody can touch them. I've got a mute demon. I mean, it's the worst kind of situation. Listen, if you will come and you will fully submit to Jesus Christ and you will let him work his work in your life, you will find victory. But here's the reality for us as humans. We like our sin. We like our stuff. And we cling to it. And he said, no, that's not it. I would do anything. And then a brother or sister actually begins to speak to you about some of the things that you need to do. All right, let's be wise about this. Let's trust in the power of Jesus Christ. Let's look for that same resurrection power that raised him from the dead to be at work in your life so that you are no longer a slave to, six, uh, to, to sin. Read Romans chapter 6. And, and so let's have that faith. And then let's also begin to make some practical steps so that you are no longer under this power. Let's not, you know, spend any more time with that person. Let's get rid of your computer. Let's get rid of this. Let's get, no, no, no. Can't, you can't do that. Well, listen, how badly do you want to be out from underneath the power of this sin? And the compromise and the, the, the negotiation begins to take place. Jesus has the power to deliver us from anything. He is the stronger man. He's the one that has died and rose from the dead. So you and I will no longer be slave to sin. If we are a slave to sin, it is not because there is something deficient in Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to be naive or simplistic and say there's not a battle to be fought. There is a battle to be fought. But Jesus has made it clear that he is a stronger man. In verses 23 through 26, we keep on reading. And Jesus asks the question, is basically, who are you aligned with? He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. So demons are wanting to have a place to inhabit. These disembodied spirits are looking for a body to have. Verse 25, and when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. In other words, you know, this, this person's life is, is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Um, it's not under the lordship of Jesus Christ is what we read. Then he goes out and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last day of the man is worse than the first. So you either are for me or against me. This man who just had the demon cast out, he has to make that volitional choice to follow me and to be a part of my kingdom. If he doesn't do that, although he has been delivered, seven others can come back and inhabit him, and now it will be a worse state than before I came and got involved in somebody's life. And I, obviously Jesus is talking about possession and somebody being repossessed here. But I do think there is this application of those who 
they, they begin to kind of dabble in the things of Christ. And there's, there's work that's done on, going on in their life. And they experience the hand of God moving in their life. And yet, they never really come to full faith in Jesus Christ. And when they go back, they can go back so far into the world. And that they are often worse than they ever were in sin before they had an experience with the Lord. So we must be with him and not against him. Uh, those who are bringing this accusation were clearly against him. And the question is, who are you for? Are you for the Lord? I mean, are, are you team Jesus, right? Are you rooting for the Lord? Are you thinking about the Lord? Are you living for his purposes and the things that are important for him? And to him, are these the priorities of your life and my life? Or do we allow other priorities and other um, agendas to come in? But see, we are slaves of Christ Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price, and we sang of that price. It's the blood of the Lamb of God. And we are no longer our own. We don't have the right any longer to say, No, Lord! We only have the privilege to say, yes, Lord, let me follow you. I am for you, and I am for the things that you are for, and I am against the things that you are against. And that should be how we're living our life. Verses 27 and 28, we read about the blessing of hearing and obeying. And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. That's an interruption right there. But the Lord's going to take this interruption and he's going to keep the sermon going on point. He says, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The very thing that these Pharisees and these lawyers and these religious leaders were not doing. Those that would not be for him. He's talking about being for me. She, she interrupts. She goes, well, she, she loved what she saw. She goes, wow, your mom, she's a blessed woman. Yeah, she is blessed. But let me tell you who's even blessed more than Mary. Those that hear and obey. They keep my word. That, that person, that man, that woman is more blessed than my mother. The real blessing is in hearing the word of God and obeying the word of God. How do we view obedience to Jesus Christ? 1 John says that keeping the commandments of God are not a burden to us. They're not a heavy trip, some you know, big law dropped down on your back that you've got to obey Jesus. Like, oh man, this is so hard, living a life for Jesus and obeying him. The Bible says it's not a burden. The Bible doesn't say this. Jesus actually says right here, that it's a blessing to hear what he has to say and to obey what he has to say. How do you view the commands of God in your life today? Businessman, businesswoman, honesty. Is it a real difficult thing to have to walk in honesty and charge what you said you were going to charge and do the work that you said you were going to do? Is, it, is this like a, a really difficult? No, it's a blessing to hear the word of the Lord and to obey, to walk in honesty or purity. 
It's a blessing to walk in purity. It is a blessing to walk in forgiveness. Well, it doesn't feel like it. Why? Why does it not feel like a blessing to hear the commands of God and walk in them? Because Jesus is saying it's a blessing. John, when he writes, says they're not a burden. So where where are things out of place? Is the Lord wrong? Is Scripture not quite right? Or is it more a window into our own heart of where we are with the Lord? What did Jesus say about obeying him? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Our relationship with the Lord is not a law-based relationship. We are not a moral code kind of a people. There are plenty of moral code type of people out there. We are people that love our King. We love our Savior. And because we love Him, it drives us to walk in obedience. Even when our flesh may rise up and say, don't do it. The Spirit of the Lord says, oh no, we're doing it because I am for Him. And I love Him. And I love what He's done in my life. And I cannot live my life in such a way that would be an offense. I could not walk and obey um, my flesh and offend the one who hung on the cross for the very things I'm engaging in. And this is an insight into our heart. And you know what we do often at this point is when we're feeling this, this tension and that it's, it doesn't feel like a blessing to obey. It feels like a curse. I wish, that com- I wish that wasn't in there. I wish I could do something else. I wish he wouldn't have said that. Here's what you need to do. Here's what Troy needs to do. I need to go spend some time with my king. I need to go spend more time with the Lord. Well, I'm spending time. Then you're, you're not spending the right kind of time, and I'm not spending the right kind of time. Because the result of spending time with Jesus is I want to obey him. You fall in love with him. So whatever time you're having, whatever the quiet time looks like or the prayer time, I don't know. But I would do this. I would crumple it up and just fall on my face before the Lord and say, something's not working in my life, in my heart. Something is out of sorts. Lord, I give up. And just seek him afresh and anew. Start from scratch, if you will. Because our hearts must be touched And in love with the Lord, if we're going to see his commandments as a blessing, if we're going to be for him. Because if you're just trying to muscle through, you're going to hit a point where you can't muscle through anymore. Isn't this true? And so it is not try harder necessarily. It is not, you know, uh, feel more condemned. It is fall more in love with the Lord. Fall more in love with Jesus. Consider, ponder the cross. Ponder your state apart from Jesus at work in your life. What does it look like, both now and in eternity? Oh, such a hard thing. I mean, I've got to forgive, but this is such a terrible thing. It is a blessing for you to forgive those that have offended you. It is a blessing to you and me to walk in kindness to those who don't treat me kindly. It's not a curse. It's a blessing. Jesus said, the wise man built his house upon the rock, but the foolish man built his, hand, uh, his house upon the sand. And when the storms came, one had a blessing and one had a tragedy. 
The one who had walked in obedience and built their house upon the rock of Jesus Christ. His words in obeying him, it stood. The others, they were washed away. You know, we can, we can fake it. We can pretend like we've got it all going on. We can pretend like we're, we're walking with Jesus. And yet you can feel, if you're honest, you can feel that slow burn that's taking place in your heart. You're not as interested in the things of the Lord. You've got a lot of other ideas that are going on. You have a lot of other isms that really seem to be appealing to you. And that seems to be on the rise. And your faith in Jesus Christ, it seems to be on the decline. And as that takes place, suddenly there comes a day when the storm hits and, and the life comes crashing to the ground. How does that happen to those that have walked with Jesus for so long? It's because they have stopped abiding in him. So walk in the blessing of hearing Jesus and obeying. It was right before them. They could hear what he had to say as he was casting out the demon and saying, I'm the power. I'm the, I'm the stronger one here. And the kingdom of God has come. Do you hear what I'm saying? It can be a blessing to you if you want it to be. How many have heard that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior? And then apart from him, there is no other way to come and have eternal life. And upon hearing that, they have turned away. Oh, the blessing of bowing our knee before Jesus and confessing him as our Savior. Jesus then goes into a couple of examples of those that heard and heeded. But in both of these cases, he's going to be making references to Gentiles, which was like fingernails on a chalkboard to the crowd he was with. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given it to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Remember they said, hey, show us a sign. Maybe we'll believe with this miracle you just did. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up and then judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. He's referring to himself. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So he returns to this question they have said, we want to see a sign. And they've been dismissing the signs. He's been performing miracles left and right, and they're not enough for him. John wrote... In his uh, gospel, in John 20, verses 30 and 31, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, he wrote about some, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I, I want to make certain that you don't think of like, come on, Jesus, just show the sign, do something, and then they will believe. That is not the case because he did perform signs and they rejected him. And John wrote a whole gospel highlighting seven specific signs that all pointed to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And isn't this the question that's really beneath the surface here in Luke chapter 11? 
What are the seven signs? Turning water into wine. Cleansing the temple. Healing the nobleman's son. Healing the lame man. Feeding the multitude. Healing the blind man. And raising Lazarus from the dead. Those are the seven signs that John puts in his gospel that says, these were performed that you would know that he is the Son of God. Jesus isn't shortchanging them. They're just unwilling to see what he's going to show. One example, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He had been in the tomb for days, and he rose him from the dead. Even the family said, don't move this, this stone. Have you moved that stone? I mean, he, the, the odor's going to come out of there. They, he had been in the process of decomposing and the Lord says, move the stone. And out comes Lazarus walking. A notable miracle, it says, in John chapter 12 was performed. But what did these guys decide to do about this notable miracle that was causing many to believe? What, what did they want to do with Lazarus? They wanted to kill him. He performed a sign and they wanted to get rid of the sign. So when Jesus says this is an evil generation, he was right. And the signs were there. They were all around, but they did not want to see and they did not want to receive. So he points to the two examples that would have been, you know, you know again, fingernails on the chalkboard. He talks about how Jonah, swallowed by a great fish, in the belly of the fish, three days and three nights, question, for your discussion on the way home, did Jonah really die? Or was he alive and sustained the whole time in there? And when he came out, was it a resurrection? Is that kind of like, blah, you know, he came out and that was his resurrection experience. It's something to talk about. Read through Jonah again. Either way, it was meant to be a sign of how Jesus was going to be in the belly of the earth for three days and for three nights and would rise from the dead. So at the very least, figuratively, you had a prophet named Jonah that had risen from the dead and he came preaching and they repented. They repented, much to his disappointment, right? I mean, he was so sad that they repented. He's like, I knew it. This is why I didn't want to preach because I know you like to forgive people. You're such a softy. You're such a merciful God. These terrible you know, Ninevites, they're evil. He didn't want to see them. That's why he ran in the other direction. He was so convinced of the mercy and the grace and the long-suffering of God that he thought, if I go and preach to these people, they're going to repent and God's going to receive them. I'm not going to go and, re and, and preach to them that they would repent. And so then he gets thrown overboard. He gets swallowed by a great you know, fish. He was you know, vomited and then made the journey um, in that state and went and preached but they, the Gentiles, they, they repented when they heard what he had to say. He says, listen, there's one greater than Jonah here. But this Gentile generation that repented, they're going to rise up and they're going to condemn you for your hardness of heart. And then he talks about the Queen of Sheba that came and heard what Solomon had to say. She's going to rise up in condemnation of this generation because you have God in the flesh in your midst and you are unwilling to believe and hear and receive. What a rebuke. What a, re a rebuke. So you got the examples of disobedience. 
Verses 33 through 36, Jesus gives us a, uh, an illustration of a lamp and is essentially saying, receive the light that's, that's coming to you. Receive the light of Jesus. Verse 33, no one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, have no part, um, have no part dark. The whole body will be full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. So he gives them this illustration of a little lamp that they all would have been familiar with. They all would have had these little oil lamps in their homes. And, and he's saying, you don't go and hide this. You put it out so it can, it can do what it needs to do. It can fill the room with light. And he talks about the eye and how the eye is letting you know, light in. And they had seen with their eyes a notable miracle and yet no light was coming in. They couldn't see it. They could not receive the light of Jesus Christ because their eye was bad. What is their ailment? It was their religion. It was their own quest for power. It was their desire to live and do things the way they wanted to do. Pilate says that, we read that Pilate knew that when they came and turned Jesus in to be crucified, they did this because of envy. Because of jealousy. Jesus had crowds following him. He was performing miracles. When he taught, everybody listened. And people said, why can't these guys teach like that? And they became incredibly jealous. And envious of him. And they wanted to put him to death. Because they wanted to indulge their flesh. And that is a problem. When our flesh and our way of life stands in the way of being able to see Jesus Christ for who He really is. There exist two groups of people. Those that hear and see the work of Christ and accept it, and those who hear and see the work of Christ and reject it and count it as an evil thing. I hope you're one that sees the work of Jesus, all the miracles He performed, all the teaching, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And I pray that you look at that and you say, that is the Son of God. And that is the one that I want to follow. That is the one I want to be for. I want to be with Jesus. And if you haven't done that, you need to do that. You need to make that confession of Christ. You need to turn and you need to come to him and let him lead you and guide you. And he will illuminate your life with his word and his spirit to guide you. We wrap it up in verses 37 through 52. And it's a lengthy section here. But he's going to give examples of disobedience. And this really even breaks down into two different groups. He's going to talk about the Pharisees and then he's going to talk about the lawyers. Um, so they were two different groups. Um, the Pharisees were a sect. The lawyers were the ones that were like the experts in the matters of the law. They, they were the ones that would inform the Sanhedrin made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. 
And then the lawyers would come along and they would be their research committee, if you will, and say, this is what it means, this is what it says, and they would take that. So these are the two groups that we have going on. We begin looking at verses 37 through 41. And he spoke a certain, uh, and as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness, foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. He talks about the hypocrisy of their washing rituals. They had made it an art and a science to wash themselves. When you go to Israel today, there are uh, these ritual baths called mikvahs all over the place. All over the place. Every time they dig, they find another mikvah. You can go out to um, the Dead Sea area where there is hardly any water at all and you'll find mikvahs. And uh, around the temple, there's all kinds of mikvahs. Um, these ritual baths. They had all this, these rituals, by the way, um, they were supposed to make themselves clean so they would be pure. Now, obviously, there were certain things that could defile a person, um, but they had taken it to a level that was never intended. But they used all this physical washing of themselves to hide what was dirty on the inside. So, hey, listen, it's a lot easier to walk down into a mikvah and come up, you know, two minutes later than it is to reach into your pocket and to give to somebody who's hungry. And he says, your heart is dirty. Well, your body's clean, but inside, it's bad stuff. And you don't care for the needy. You don't care for the poor. You have all of these rituals. Remember, they even had one that if their parents were in need and they didn't feel inclined to help out their parents, they could say, mom and dad could say, you know, hey, son, you know, we need some help. And it was the responsibility of the children to take care of their parents. It is the responsibility of children to take care of their parents. And, and they would come say, oh, such a bummer, dad. I just like, I mean, I wish you would have come like, you know, two days ago because just, just like now, I just committed um, a bunch of money to the temple. It was called Corbin. And so I, I committed, I, I, there's a Corbin, and my money's tied up in dedication to the temple, so I can't help you right now. So mom and dad walk away without anything. But they had this unique little way they could come back and they say, oh, what, uh, forget that Corbin thing. I, I, I don't want to do that anymore. Oh, okay, now you're off. And so now all the money would come back to them. And so they had all these ways by which they could get around helping out even their mom and dad. But boy, they were, they, they were Mr. Clean, if you saw them. They smelled fresh. They, they were clean. I mean, they, they, they did it all. So here comes Jesus, and he sits down, and he doesn't go through any of the hand washings that they did. No doubt on purpose. He's like, you want to talk about something? Let's talk about this. I'm not washing my hands like you guys do. Because I want to deal with what's in your heart. So you can imagine this uh, dinner got real tense all of a sudden. 
Everything didn't taste nearly as good as it did when they first began. It says, take care of your heart. Verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs. Can you imagine going through the process of doing that? You get your little, just go home and just for the fun of it, you don't have to do it, but just I mean, take your spice rack, dump them all out, count up how many you have, and make sure you set 10% aside. This is what these guys were doing. Okay? So they were, they were, knew that they were to give a tenth of all that they had. And he says, You do this. He says, And pass by justice and the love of God. These you have often done. You should have been faithful with your resources without leaving the others undone. You take care of all these small things, but you're not dealing with the real important matters of justice and loving God. It's all outward. You're doing all these things. you got your little spice bag when you come in and you're, you're trying to impress people or what, but, but what about justice? What about loving your God? Verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. So he rebukes them for the religious positions they were holding. They wanted to be recognized as being important. But they should have been concerned with giving glory to God, not seeking glory for themselves. Verse 44. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. I mean, can you just... Again, can you imagine being at this dinner? Again, I said in the opening, Jesus did not get the memo about being politically correct. Don't call them hypocrites. But they're hypocrites. They're actors. That's what the word hypocritus. Uh, that's what it means, is to, is to be an actor. You pretend to be one way, but you're doing the other. You know, sometimes people say, I don't want to go to church because there's so many hypocrites. Well, let me tell you what is not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is not a person who comes to church, who falls in sin, and beats their chest and say, Oh Lord, forgive me, I have fallen in sin. That's not a hypocrite. That's a realist that hopefully can continue to walk. A hypocrite is a person who pretends to have it all together when it's all a mess. I think sometimes we misuse the word hypocrite. It's not sinner, it's different. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He who says that he does not sin is a liar, right? This is, we all miss the mark. But do you acknowledge that you miss the mark? Or do you hide it and keep on sinning, pretending like you have it all together? So when Jesus uses this word, it would have just, again, caused everybody to be quiet. He says, for you are like graves which are not seen and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. So, Numbers chapter 19, verse 16 says that if you were to come in contact with the dead, that you would be unclean for seven days. So what was often done, or what was done in that day, in the springtime of the year, um, they would go out and they would put a whitewash on where all the tombs were, so that as people came into town, and as people uh, traveled about, they wouldn't mistakenly bump up against, lean up against, walk over a grave. And so, and therefore become unclean. And so he says, you're like a grave that's hidden for who you really are. And when people come in contact with you, you corrupt them. 
you mess them up spiritually. You know, just by way of reading this, Jesus never talks like this to the sinner, the two sinners. He talks like this to religious hypocrites who ought to know better. Does he speak to this woman that was caught in the very act of adultery? He doesn't talk that way, does he? But when he deals with those that were turning people away from coming and they were you know, just full of all kinds of uh, religious corruption, he lays into them. Verse 45 and 46. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. Bingo. <laughs> this guy wasn't the sharpest lawyer in the crowd. He said, yeah, woe to you lawyers. Good point. Let me, let me say a few things to you guys too. For you load men with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So again, they're experts in the law. They came up with all of these extra rules and regulations you had to do to keep the law. And he says, you can't, you don't help people and you can't even help yourself. But you sure weigh people down. So he rebukes the hypocrisy of their teaching. Verses 47 through 51, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them. You can think of the prophets like Isaiah that were persecuted and put to death. In fact, you just can imagine the, the disciples with them when he comes to, in fact, they're like, oh no, what's he going to say now? In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. I mean, you're just like them. You're murderers of the prophets of God. In fact, you are, you're just like them. You build the, the tombs and you dress them up, but in reality, you don't honor the prophets. You are like the ones who killed them. Therefore, verse 49 the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel, right, Cain and Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. So Zechariah, you need to go to 2 Chronicles 24, 21, which in the... Uh, the Jewish Bible was the last book of their canon. Genesis, the beginning, at the very end, the last book of their canon was Second Chronicles, and there were bookends of death found there. And he says, you're just like them. Verse 52, Woe to you lawyers, for you've taken... Imagine this lawyer's body. He's like, why did you have to open your mouth? I mean, if you would have just been quiet... Maybe you would have just stayed on the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken the key of knowledge. I mean, these were the experts in the word. You've taken the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and those who are entering, you hindered. Which may be the harshest of all the rebukes. You study the word of God. You have the key to the knowledge that people need to know. But you don't unlock the door and go in. And, and of course, the most egregious is that they're 
turning people away from following Jesus right now. They're not willing to come in and receive prophet Jesus, and they're plotting to kill them. That's why he says you're just like them, because he knows what they're up to, and he knows what they're going to do. He says, but you also keep everybody else out. You don't let people come. You know, the crowd marvels at the miracle. And they are thinking, well, he does this by the power of Satan. They're, they're, they're figuring out how they're going to turn the crowd around. He do, they don't even get the chance to do it because he calls them out because they were just thoughts in their mind. And so Jesus comes and levels this serious rebuke against them. When I read verse 52, it makes me sit up and to look closely at how I conduct myself as one who has the key of knowledge, the Word of God, and studies it, reads it, and I have the opportunity to spend my life doing this, never wanting to be in the way to not enter myself or to hinder others from going into the presence of the Lord and understanding who He is. Think of the many pastors, those that are in seminaries, and they teach young pastors, and they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. I always think, what's the point? Why are you doing that? Pastors that are teaching their congregations. You know, when you look at most polls, and you look at the congregation, and then you look at um, you know, the, the leaders of the church, whether they be in seminaries or pastors, who do you think is always the most liberal? It's the seminaries and the pastors that are always many percentage points higher in their liberal thoughts of rejecting Jesus and believing in Scripture than the people that are sitting out in the congregation. What? what, And I'm not aiming at Liberty University with that. I'm just saying, I'm making a general statement here, okay? I happen to think there are great godly people out there. So don't read into that. But this is what happens. And this is the way it exists in most of Christendom to this, to this very moment. Most of those that teach from the seminaries, most that are standing in the pulpits are liberal. And they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. That you've got to believe in him. We close here, verses 53 and 54. Jesus levels a huge rebuke at them, and they fail to receive the rebuke that they might walk in obedience. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things. I mean, the room erupted. I don't know what Jesus' posture is, but if I'm just a, you know, guessing here, he's done this, his finger's been going, he's been saying, as a matter of fact, oh yeah, you lawyers, i got some things to say to you guys. And he just levels them out, and then they erupt, and I imagine he just sits back and just looks at them. He's rebuked them, which is hard and severe, but true. They have the opportunity to repent, like the Ninevites. They have the opportunity to repent like the Queen of Sheba. You don't want to be condemned by them? All right, well, let me rebuke you. Let me call you to repentance. And yet, this is how they respond. No brokenness. No humility. Verse 54, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him and something that he might say that they might accuse him. 
how tragic it is after the Lord comes and rebukes us that we keep pressing on in our current sins. He calls us to things and we keep on moving. You know, I want to read to you this quote, and we're going to close with me reading this, but you know, some may be troubled by this Jesus we've just read about. Let me read to you. This is from uh, James Edwards, and I've quoted from him quite a few times as we've gone, been going through um, the Gospel of Luke. So i got about five or six sentences here. It says, The conclusion of Luke 11 may appear offensive to those who hold a stereotype of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus appears to be a rude guest who offends against good manners of ritual purity, who rebukes Pharisees for being internally filthy, and concludes with an expose of the worst offenses of both Pharisees and lawyers. Such a profile poses a challenge for an age like ours that equates Christianity with niceness and tolerance. The present pericope also gives us a fuller understanding of the virtues of Luke 6, verses 27 through 31. The denunciation of the Pharisees and lawyers demonstrates, listen, this is the part I want us to hear, demonstrates that love of enemies does not mean saying what people want to hear, but telling the truth that they may not want to hear. Doing good to those who hate you does not mean being nice in the face of hatred and injustice, but speaking and acting in ways that have the potential to reduce or eliminate hatred and injustice. The great violation of agape, the agape love ethic is not confrontation, but indifference. Jesus is not indifferent, and neither should we be indifferent. It doesn't mean you get red-faced. It doesn't mean you scream and call people names. But do you speak the truth? What? In love. You say the hard thing. Jesus said the hard thing. He gave them an opportunity to repent. They did not take it. But he came to them. We need to be not hearers of the word only, but doers also. James chapter 1. Father, thank you for your word and your truth. Thank you, Lord, that you are hard with us when we need to hear the hard word. Thank you that you rebuke us when we need to be rebuked. And we say, like the psalmist, that we count it as kindness to be rebuked by you. Thank you that you would love us enough to tell us, Lord, when we're living our lives in a way that is deadly. Thank you when a person comes in your name and calls us to repentance. Lord, if that be what is happening here tonight, I pray that all that here would see this as kindness, the confrontation that you brought to our lives.